On March 28, 1878, Mark Hopkins, at 65 the oldest of four partners in the mighty Central Pacific Railroad, died in his sleep aboard a company train near Yuma, Arizona. He left behind an estate valued at over $23 million, the equivalent of tens of billions today. But he did not leave a will saying who should get his vast fortune, even though his partners had chosen him to be the treasurer of the Central Pacific precisely because they considered him to be the most thorough and careful partner. Now, Hopkins had no children, so his legal next of kin were his wife and two older brothers. Within two years of Hopkins' death, one brother had filed legal action first against Mark's widow and then against the other brother, marking the beginning of a legal saga that 50 years later involved almost a thousand different claimants to the Hopkins estate. Hello, and welcome to You Can't Take It With You, a podcast about the life and afterlife of America's greatest fortunes. My name is Eric Schoenberg. I have a PhD from and have taught in the psychology department at Columbia University, where my primary research interest is the psychology of money and wealth. I'm sort of a behavioral economist with an emphasis on behavior rather than economics. And here's one question that I've been thinking about for over 30 years. Why do people want to become rich? Now, I think you'd agree that this is fundamentally a question about psychology, about motivation. But it is also of particular interest to economists because of its importance to the question of why people save at all, since the very heart of capitalism is the accumulation of capital through savings. But I have an answer to this question fundamentally different from the one that remains the central approach offered by economics since the 1950s, when a few economists said, well, people save so that they can spend later, like in retirement. They call this the life cycle theory because it predicts people build up savings while they're working in order to be able to spend those savings down after retiring. And it sure sounds like a reasonable idea, but the thing about really rich people is that most of them don't spend anywhere near all their money on themselves. Most of the time, they leave behind a large chunk of wealth when they die. So the economists added a twist to their theory called the bequest motive, the idea that some people save because they want their kids and grandkids to be able to spend the money later which also sounds reasonable until you realize that it predicts that there won't be rich people without children, which is clearly wrong. And worse, the various forms of bequest motives which have been proposed by economists don't do a very good job explaining the behavior of those who do have children either. I think people want to become rich because they like being rich. That is, their goal isn't spending a big pile of money, it's having a big pile of money, and they leave it behind when they die for the simple reason that they can't take it with them. 4,000 years ago, when wealth was first being piled up in great amounts by Egyptian pharaohs, people did try to take their wealth with them by burying vast quantities of gold and other precious objects with their mummified bodies. But that is no longer considered socially appropriate 
If a rich person tried that today in a stab at immortality, people would think they were crazy. Instead, the rich today try to ensure their own immortality through endowing philanthropic foundations, getting their names on buildings at universities, and through founding family dynasties. Now, I'm hardly the first person to make this argument about the motivation of the rich. Heck, even Adam Smith, arguably the founder of the whole discipline of economics, endorsed basically the same idea, that people want to become rich to soothe their egos, not because they want to spend it. And yet economics mostly abandoned this theory in favor of life cycle savings and bequest motives. Which is really strange because of another argument economists like to make. That if you want to figure out what people really want, that is, their motivation, it's a mistake to just ask them, since they have no reason to answer truthfully. Instead, it's better to give someone a real choice, say between a banana and an apple, and then someone who chooses the banana is said to have shown a revealed preference that they like bananas more than apples. So as a research project, I started looking at the wills of some of the richest Americans in history to see what they actually did with their money when they died in order to see what it might reveal about why they accumulated so much in the first place. And some of the stories I've uncovered along the way are so fascinating, I thought I'd share them with you and maybe discuss a little behavioral economics along the way, too. In episode one, A Man Without a Plan, I begin with perhaps the craziest story of all, that of Mark Hopkins, the oldest of four partners in the mighty Central Pacific Railroad, and the story that really kicked off this project. Because one of the sources I used for my research was a 1996 book called The Wealthy 100, which tried to identify the richest 100 Americans in history. And here's what that book has to say about Mark Hopkins, 32nd on their list. Hopkins was such a mystery in his personal life that even his biography is controversial. There were apparently two Mark Hopkinses in Sacramento at the same time, one from New York and one from North Carolina. <laughs> to make matters worse, the poorer New York Mark Hopkins also worked at Central Pacific. When he died, his wife went to work for the richer North Carolina Mark Hopkins as his housekeeper. After his death, she claimed to be his widow and inherited most of his $20 million estate, much to the chagrin of his North Carolina descendants. To which my response was, holy cow, is that really true? And after doing some research, my answer to that is, no, it is not true. But to understand the equally crazy story of where his fortune really ended up, in the hands of the cousins of the secretary of the second husband of Mark's widow, we have to go back to the very beginning of that fortune. Mark Hopkins was born September 1, 1813, in rural New York, the fifth of seven sons. His father died when he was 15, so he left school and began working as a clerk. In the early 1840s, he moved to New York City, where he was working as a bookkeeper, when news arrived that gold had been discovered in California. So in January 1849, Hopkins boarded a ship in New York Harbor, which six months later docked in San Francisco. When he arrived, he was 36 years old, already an old-timer for a 49er, many of whom were still in their teens. He didn't smoke or drink, 
and ate very little meat. As one historian noted, Hopkins was an old man from the moment he put foot ashore, constantly surrounded by those younger than himself. Easily and inevitably, he accepted the title of Uncle Mark and adopted the mannerisms and the viewpoint of an oldster. From the first, his partners looked on him as a kindly but slightly decrepit ancient, full of the wisdom of age, but hedged in by its conservatism. In a letter Hopkins wrote to his brother Moses a year after his arrival, he tells that he quickly learned that mining was not the job for him. Since I have been in California, I've worked in the mines six days. Six of the hardest day's works I've ever performed anywhere. I was reasonably rewarded, but I shall probably dig my gold some other way. It is outright folly for merchants' clerks, mere indoor men, to think of working with their hands in the mines. That same month, he opened a grocery store in Sacramento, which became successful enough to allow him to return to New York City in 1854 to marry his first cousin, Mary Frances Sherwood. They would not have any children, but together they did raise a foster son named Timothy, born in 1859 on the east coast of the United States, and taken to California as an infant by his mother, following behind a husband who died in a tragic accident shortly before they arrived. The widow began working in the Hopkins household, sometimes bringing her toddler Timothy with her, and the child took a shine to Mrs. Hopkins, which the childless Mary Frances soon reciprocated. When Timothy's mother left the household in the late 1860s, Timothy, still a child under the age of 10, stayed behind. In 1855, Hopkins partnered with Collis Huntington in a hardware and iron business, and six years later, the two partners hosted a meeting at which a young engineer named Judah Benjamin laid out plans for a new transcontinental railroad. Huntington and Hopkins agreed to back him, as did two other Sacramento merchants who Hopkins had met through his involvement with the newly formed Republican Party, Charles Crocker and Leland Stanford. With a conservative nature and a reputation for being both methodical and thrifty, Hopkins was the natural choice for treasurer of the new company. Preventing waste, reaping an unexpected profit, driving a good bargain. These were his favorite recreations, the only sport he enjoyed. He knew how to squeeze 106 cents out of every dollar. The partners' Republican connections proved very useful when Congress passed the Pacific Railway Act in 1862, offering federal land as a subsidy for railroad construction. Work on the Central Pacific began a year later, and in 1869, its eastward expansion from Sacramento met the Union Pacific's westward expansion from Iowa, completing the first transcontinental railroad. The Big Four, the name the public gave the Union Pacific's four owners, had become very, very rich from the railroad's construction, and they continued to expand their rail empire southwards. Three of the partners began living the lives of rich men, but Hopkins barely changed his habits. When the company moved its headquarters to San Francisco in 1873, the other partners quickly built enormous mansions, but Hopkins was content to rent a small cottage near his office. Eventually, he allowed his wife to convince him that a man of his wealth was expected to have a suitable mansion, 
But soon after construction began, Hopkins began to suffer painfully from rheumatism. In early March 1878, thinking that the heat and sun of Arizona would help, he commandeered a company train to take him south. A month later, his body was returned to San Francisco for his funeral. His obituary from the San Francisco Alta said, Of the Central Pacific magnates, he was the least known and had the least to do with the general public. He was a hard worker, and it might almost be said that he had no enjoyment, save his work. He was quiet, unpretending, affable, and as popular as a millionaire can well be. He leaves a widow, but no child to inherit his vast estate. An initial inventory of the estate filed in San Francisco's probate court estimated its value at an astronomical $24 million. Now, comparing wealth across long periods of time is tricky, but as a percentage of United States gross national product at the time, this would be the equivalent of around $56 billion today. Unfortunately, despite the fact that his partners thought highly of his careful nature, in the words of one of them, he had general supervision of the books and the papers, contracts, etc. I never thought anything finished until Hopkins had seen it. When he said they were right, I never cared to look at them. It turned out Hopkins never bothered to write a will. California state law at that time dictated that when someone without children died without a will, the legal term is intestate, three-quarters of the estate went to a surviving spouse with the remaining quarter split among any surviving siblings, of which Mark had two, both older, Samuel and Moses. Fighting immediately began over whether the estate was really worth much more than $24 million. In 1880, Samuel filed a petition asking for the removal of Mary Frances as administrator of the estate on the grounds that she had failed to properly manage its accounting. His petition was granted, and his brother Moses was appointed to take her place. But a year later, Samuel requested that the court replace Moses as administrator, claiming that he too was biased, favoring not only Mary Frances, but also Hopkins's former partners, who certainly did have their own agendas around who would control Hopkins' shares. This time, however, Samuel lost, so he decided to cut and run. In December 1881, he sold his one-eighth interest in the estate to his brother for an unknown amount, which would turn out to be a smart move for Samuel, since he had a mere three years to enjoy his money before passing away. Shortly after, a San Francisco probate court judge finalized the distribution of the Hopkins estate in November 1883. Three-fourths to Mrs. Mary Frances Hopkins and one-fourth to Moses Hopkins. It had already been five years since Hopkins' death. Legal battles would continue for nearly a century. In the aftermath of Mark's death, the relationship of Mary Frances and her foster son deepened. Mary Frances formally adopted 19-year-old Timothy only a year after Mark's passing. Plans for him to attend Harvard were shelved in favor of a more practical apprenticeship managing her now extensive business affairs, which he did quite successfully. He even married her niece, and the couple received as a wedding gift a large estate named Sherwood Hall, now the location of the Civic Center of the city of Menlo Park, California. Together they would have one daughter, born in March 1887, but by then their relationship with Mary Frances had changed very much for the worse. 
because of Mary Frances' romance with a much younger man. In April 1883, a furniture connoisseur named Edward Francis Searles paid a visit to see the now-completed Hopkins Mansion at the top of Knob Hill in San Francisco. Frank Searles had previously worked for the fancy New York decorators Herder Brothers and was now on a personal visit to San Francisco armed with a letter of introduction to millionaire clients of his former firm. Since Mark had died, his widow had shown that she was less averse to spending money than he had been, and she had already dropped a bundle decorating her new palace. All evidence suggests that Mary Frances immediately found Frank Searles to be handsome, charming, and cultured. She invited him for dinner at her mansion and saw him four more times over the four weeks he was in San Francisco. Soon after, she moved back east, back to her childhood home of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, where she asked Searles to help her build a memorial for her deceased husband. Searles would eventually testify in court that she proposed to him, but that he was resistant at first. It appears Timothy was even more resistant. He hired detectives to investigate Searles' past, and Mary Frances became increasingly annoyed with Timothy, finally writing to ask him to stop speaking of the topic. Soon thereafter, in November 1887, Mrs. Hopkins became Mrs. Searles. She was 69 and her bridegroom 46. Two weeks later, Mary Frances wrote a new will, leaving her estate to a trust equally controlled by and benefiting her adopted son and her new husband. Her married bliss would last less than four years. She died in July 1891, age 73. Part two of the Hopkins saga began when it was revealed that Mary Frances had executed another will in 1888, replacing the one written only six months earlier. The new will left everything to Frank Searles and included a clear indication of how displeased Mary Frances had become with her foster son, Timothy. The omission to provide in this will for my adopted son, Timothy Hopkins, is intentional and not occasioned by accident or mistake. Timothy didn't take the hint. He filed to block probate of the will, joined by over 20 of Mary Frances's cousins, who had also been excluded from any inheritance. They claimed that Searles had exerted undue influence on Mary and focused their case on revelations that Mary Frances was a longtime believer in spiritualism, arguing that Frank had used seances to manipulate her. Despite an initial ruling by a probate court that the will was valid, even the judge noted that, This decision of mine is not at all on the merits of the case. Why, we've had only about one-third of the evidence put in, and the most important witnesses have not been examined. Quite possibly desiring to keep it that way, four months later, in March 1892, Frank reached a confidential settlement giving Timothy an estimated three and a quarter million dollars in exchange for a promise that he leave Frank in peace to enjoy the rest of the Hopkins money. Timothy kept his end of the bargain, and Frank Searles spent the next 28 years living a solitary, eccentric, and very private life, mostly building and decorating mansions. The media remained fascinated with this accidental tycoon, 
and occasionally newspapers would print reports of odd claims, such as that he had requested that his staff call him Lord Searles. He died in August 1920, three decades after his wife, leaving an estate valued at around $25 million. Oddly, about the same amount as Mark Hopkins had left 40 years earlier, but of course worth far less in economic terms because of inflation and growth in the economy. Searle's death initiated the next and strangest chapter of the Hopkins estate saga. Two weeks before dying, Searles had executed a will which left $4 million to his cousin and her three children. They were also offered the chance to reside at one of the Searles estates for their lifetime if they renamed themselves Searles, but none of them did. He also left $250,000 to his nephew Victor Searles, $10,000 to his friend Angelo Ellison, and the residual of his estate, something like $20 million, to a person identified in his will as, quote, his friend Arthur Walker. And who was that? The New York Times called him a clerk who had never been heard of before. So who was this guy? The clearest explanation of Walker's background comes from an offbeat manuscript biography of Searles written 25 years after his death by a man who clearly knew Searles or had access to his diaries. Walker had been a clerk at the law firm that represented the Searles railroad interests on Wall Street. At Searles' invitation, Walker spent a week at Searles' estate in November 1911 to rest after an illness. Later, when a vacancy opened at the Searles-owned newspaper, the New York Globe, Searles chose Walker. According to Walker's own testimony, he had started working for Searles in 1910 when he was 33 and was promoted in 1916 to manage Searles' interest in New York, soon thereafter becoming his personal secretary. Walker would later testify that he was not enthusiastic when Searles tore up a prior will to write a new one leaving him a fortune, saying, I didn't care to be hampered with the responsibility for having so much money. Indeed, the money didn't seem to provide him much pleasure. He lived in a two-room apartment in Brooklyn, and I'm not sure he ever moved even after inheriting the Hopkins fortune, but it certainly provided some pain. Less than a month after Searle's will was announced, his nephew Victor filed a legal action against Walker, despite a provision in his uncle's will voiding the bequest of anyone who challenged it. Like Timothy 30 years before, Victor claimed that Walker had used undue influence on Searles, but where Timothy's lawyers painted at least a plausible portrait of an aging and superstitious wife who had been duped by a gold-digging younger husband, Searles' lawyers offered Walker as a villain who had manipulated Searles' infatuation with Angie Ellison, the young Greek immigrant to whom Searles had left $10,000. Six years earlier, the 73-year-old Searles had met 17-year-old Angie at the Biltmore Hotel where he was working as an elevator operator. Frank soon offered Angie a job as his personal companion. He bought him a gold watch and $1,000 gold ring at Tiffany's, and he even talked about leaving him a mansion and money in his will. When Angie enlisted in the army in 1917, Frank pulled strings to keep him from going overseas and sent him letters signed, Dad. The lawyers asserted that Walker convinced his boss that Angie was too young to manage so much wealth, 
but that Walker could be trusted to be its guardian until Angie was old enough to manage it responsibly himself. The subtext of their argument wasn't meant to be subtle. The clear implication was that Walker manipulated Frank's gay infatuation with Angie. Victor's lawyer said this to the press. Mr. Searles was a recluse. He was especially shy with women and was what might be called a woman hater, not wanting them to be around him at all. Either because he thought it best to just move on, or because he was concerned about being dragged through the mud himself, in November 1920, Walker settled the suit by paying Victor just over $4 million. Since Walker was also responsible for $6 million in federal estate tax, a new levy which had only come into existence a few years earlier, and about which I'll have more to say in later episodes, he would eventually report that his share of the inheritance was only $5.2 million. But Walker's legal hassles weren't over. In May 1924, Angie Ellison filed a $17 million suit against him. His case was weak, since proving that Walker had exercised undue influence against Angie would only have made Searle's will invalid, not actually awarded it to Angie. But it was apparently strong enough for his lawyers to think they might get a settlement out of Walker. After all, Victor Searle's had. But they were wrong. Angie lost his case in March 1927 without getting a penny. Like Samuel Hopkins before him, Walker was only able to enjoy his new wealth for a short time, dying seven years after Searles in August 1927, and leaving an estate valued at $8.3 million, which his will split evenly among four sisters, two brothers, and a niece, each getting about a million dollars, with $200,000 going to Walker's own secretary, the wonderfully named Elgin Rudd. By that time, however, Angie's lawyers hope that they might carve off a piece of the Hopkins money appears to have become widely shared, beginning yet another chapter in the story of Mark Hopkins, already dead for nearly five decades. The first omen that I could find of what had been slowly bubbling under the surface is a report from the San Francisco Examiner on New Year's Eve 1924 that 120 alleged heirs of Mark Hopkins living in North Carolina planned to file a suit in California claiming that they had been fraudulently excluded from the Hopkins estate. Only a few months later, Moses Hopkins' widow died, leaving $3.8 million to be spread among friends and relatives, including her nephew Timothy. But the probate for her estate would be held up for several years because by then there were multiple suits claiming that there had been fraud 50 years earlier. There was a federal suit in California which would eventually include 547 people claiming to be descendants of seven hidden siblings of Mark Hopkins who were concealed from the probate court in 1878 a suit in California on behalf of 137 purported heirs was based on a lost will written by a seemingly illiterate Mark Hopkins found in a deserted house in North Carolina and said to have been mailed by Hopkins to a former sweetheart. 
By December 1927, the number of heirs signed on to this case had nearly doubled, just as the will was proved to be a forgery. And a federal suit in North Carolina included 174 claimed heirs. Every one of these cases lost in court, sometimes repeatedly. But since the lawyers pursuing them continued making good money, by 1931, a San Francisco judge was complaining about a countrywide swindle by attorneys beating innocent and usually ignorant people out of their savings by making them think they are heirs to Mark Hopkins. One of the most persistent swindlers, or maybe true believers, was a woman named Estelle Lotta. In 1934, her father was one of five people who filed a federal claim asserting not just that they were legitimate heirs of Mark Hopkins, but offering a whole conspiracy theory about how and why they were defrauded. They claimed that there had been two Mark Hopkins living in Sacramento in the 1860s, one from New York and one from North Carolina. Sound familiar? Yep. That's where that crazy story in the book The Wealthy 100 came from. And it turns out that the conspiracy was far more complicated than the brief explanation the authors offered there, since there was a whole bunch of inconvenient details the plaintiffs had to address. Timothy Hopkins, for instance, who in the conspiracy story became the foster son of the other Mark Hopkins, meaning he had to be orphaned twice. More problematic is the absence of any comments in San Francisco newspapers or diaries or letters for that matter, which you might have expected when the richest bachelor in town died and a wife suddenly appeared to claim his estate. But according to Estelle Lotta, that all shows just how deep the conspiracy went. It's all nuts, and it's all in service of a legal case that never went anywhere. The family lost its initial case in the 1930s. Lotta filed again in federal court in the late 1940s, lost, appealed, and lost again in 1949 and in 1959. Undaunted, she published a book in 1953 called Controversial Mark Hopkins that's still available for $30 from Amazon in a paperback edition. And that book, from 1953 is the source the wealthy 100 authors had found. To be fair to them, they didn't have the internet like I did, so they couldn't easily discover that around the time Lotta published her book, she also began selling investment contracts, giving buyers a share of the estate when she eventually won. Now, she wasn't alone in continuing this great tradition from the 1920s when lawyers charged potential heirs to join their lawsuits. Another man sold contracts to hundreds of hopeful heirs, but Lotta sold her contracts to thousands, causing the Securities and Exchange Commission to sue her in 1965 to get her to stop. Even then, when Timothy Hopkins' only daughter, died childless that same year, leaving the remainder of her trust fund to her own secretary, a theme here, Lotta sued to prevent settlement of the estate, losing in court yet again in 1968. She was finally hauled into criminal court in 1971 and charged with contempt for violating the earlier injunction against selling shares in the Hopkins estate. She died in 1982, 
but her book lives on despite being clearly and laughably wrong. So what about the real Mark Hopkins? Does this story reveal anything about why he made all that money in the first place? The first thing to note is that an obvious problem with the idea of revealed preference, the idea that you can figure out what people really want by looking at what they choose, is that it assumes that people never make mistakes and always choose the option they really prefer. Under this logic, if Mark Hopkins' money ended up being used to build castles for his widow and Frank Searles, squandered by Victor Searles, and then dispersed widely among the descendants of his brother Samuel, Frank's cousin and her family, a daughter of Victor Searles, and the siblings of Arthur Walker, well, then that's what Mark Hopkins would have wanted. Or at least he wouldn't have cared. This seems pretty obviously crazy to me. At an absolute minimum, simply writing a will, which clearly stated that he was leaving his estate to his wife, Mary Frances, would have avoided years of legal battles, which the thrifty and simplicity-loving Mark Hopkins would surely have preferred. Plus, I don't know, but given that Timothy Hopkins lived with Mark since a young age, ultimately stepped into his shoes as treasurer of the railroad, handled his mother's affairs with great competence until she cut him off, and eventually became a prominent philanthropist and longtime trustee of Stanford University, I have to think Hopkins would have preferred to leave more of his money to Timothy. That said, Hopkins certainly did seem to reveal two important preferences while he was alive, quite different from the most basic assumptions made by economists, and perhaps you as well. Namely, that people do not like to work and only do it because they need the money they get paid for working in order to buy the stuff that they do like, stuff like cars and houses and food. Because all the evidence suggests that Mark Hopkins liked to work. As one of his obituaries said, He was an indefatigable worker. He was ever employed. To be busy was the habit of his life. And Hopkins didn't particularly like to spend. A biographer says that for years his mounting wealth brought no change in his habits or surroundings. For a decade after his partners had adopted a more ornate manner of life, his frugal and methodical routine continued. Consider this. Over one five-month period in the late 1870s, the four partners drew the following amounts for their personal expenses. Crocker, $31,000. Huntington, $57,000, Stanford, $276,000, Hopkins, $800. As for the mansion he was constructing when he died, his obituary stated, It is known to many of his friends that he simply built the mansion for the hereafter, not for himself. He did not expect to enjoy it. In fact, he much preferred his little log cabin in the Sierras. So why did Hopkins want to become rich? It's hard for me not to conclude that he didn't, actually. He was an accidental millionaire. Hopkins' defect as a businessman was that he was too cautious. But he was wise enough to overcome that weakness by allying himself with speculators. Alone, he would not have failed to gain a comfortable livelihood, for he was shrewd and industrious and, above all, thrifty. But he was too prudent ever to gamble for large stakes. 
that he became possessed of more than twenty millions was against his better judgment. The role of capitalist seemed to make him faintly uncomfortable, and he sometimes acted as if he wanted to apologize for his millions. Why didn't Hopkins write a will? I think it's because he just didn't like thinking about it. Now, lots of people don't write wills because they don't like thinking about dying. But I think Mark didn't like thinking about having all that money. The whole topic made him deeply uncomfortable, and people don't like making difficult choices. To be clear, I think he made a mistake by not having a will, a big one. But before I explain what advice I might have given him, I want to spend a moment talking about the preferences revealed by Mary Frances and Frank Searles when they passed his money along, because both of them seem to have been far more concerned about who shouldn't get their money after they died than they were about who should. Why did Mary Frances leave everything to her husband? It seems likely to me that this was less about benefiting Frank and more about punishing Timothy and her cousins all of whom had received regular and large gifts of money from her, and yet had refused to be supportive of her in her second marriage. And why did Frank Searles then leave so much money to his secretary, Arthur Walker? Well, back in 1920, people found this so puzzling that they thought there must be something more to the story. And the obvious something more to it was that Searles and Walker had been lovers. And maybe you thought the same thing. Many people on the internet today certainly do. If you Google Edward Francis Searles, you will find many websites that claim that he convinced his wife, Mary Francis, to let his lover, Arthur Walker, move in with them while they were still married. But Walker was 14 when Mary Francis died in 1891. And rest assured that as Searles had had a live-in lover, Timothy would have focused his lawsuit on something other than spiritualism. To be sure, there was definitely a homoerotic element in Searles' relationship with his young protege, Angie. In the first suit over the estate, Victor's lawyer claimed that Searles had pictures of young Ellison in his sleeping room and had been seen sitting before these pictures in an attitude of worship. He could not bear to let Angelo out of his sight. But there is zero evidence their relationship was sexual, and Angie's own testimony against it, just like there is zero evidence that Searle's relationship with Walker was sexual either. In fact, Angie reported decades later that not only didn't Walker ever live with Searle's, they didn't even eat meals together. And while Angie might have lied to protect himself, it's hard to see why he would have lied to protect Walker. Furthermore, if Victor Searle's lawyers had been able to find any evidence of an unnatural relationship between Searle's and Walker, the public would surely have heard of it. Now, I really have no idea if Frank Searle's was actively gay, a repressed homosexual, or just eccentrically cultured. But there's just zero evidence that that would explain why he left his money to Arthur Walker. On the other hand, there's good reason to think Searles really didn't want his default heir, his nephew Victor, to get the money. The lawyer who drafted Searles' will said that Searles told him, I want you to know my brother said that Victor was not his son. But there was one point of resemblance between them. Victor is a notorious liar. And so was my brother. 
But you might wonder, if Searles disliked his nephew Victor so much, why did he leave him $250,000 in his will? Well, remember that the will eliminated the bequests of anyone who challenged it. So Searles might well have thought that giving his nephew something that he might lose would keep him from trying to get the rest. If so, his effort to keep the money from his nephew didn't fully succeed. But his opinion of him did prove fully justified. Over the course of just one year after settling with Walker, Victor was sued by one woman for breach of promise, by the husband of another for alienation of affection, and paid $140,000 to a third woman, his first wife, in a divorce settlement. He was also forced to give up his uncle's original $250,000 bequest as a result of his contesting the will, and was eventually sued by both the lawyer and the detective he used to get his settlement in 1920. He moved to Palm Beach, Florida, where he had his only child with his third wife, who insisted upon their divorce that he set up a half-million-dollar trust fund for their daughter. Another smart move, since in 1942, six years after marrying for the fourth time, Victor died at age 72 with debts exceeding his assets, forcing his widow to sue his estate for $5,000 she had lent him a decade earlier. She lost. By contrast, when Angelo Ellison was interviewed 60 years after he missed his chance to become ridiculously rich, he said the following. Maybe it was for the best because I'm all right. Maybe if I had gotten some of those millions, I might have become an alcoholic or a drug addict. Sometimes I think the good Lord made all this happen because it might have changed my personality. This contrast between the lives of Victor Searles, who inherited and squandered millions, and Angie Ellison, who missed out, raises a profound question. If the economists are right, and some rich people have a bequest motive to leave money to their children, are they making a mistake? In later episodes, I will offer the stories of rich men with children, one of them with 22 of them, in fact, to examine this question in more depth. But if Mark Hopkins had asked for my advice, I would have suggested that he write a will that left enough for his widow and foster son to live comfortably, and then given the rest of his money away. Like John McDonough, the star of our next episode, a man with a plan, who gave all of his great wealth away. Of course, all that got him was to have his statue dumped into the Mississippi River. You Can't Take It With You was produced and engineered by Jim Latham. Vocal acting by Sean Branny, Mark DiCarlo, Elaine Dalton, Kai Corbin, James Latham, Andrew Lehman, and Peter Zanis. If you're interested in learning more about this story, I recommend Oscar Lewis's book, Big Four.